Uh, welcome, Seven Mile Road. Uh, once again, this morning, it's truly a joy to be here with you. And as Dennis said, I'm not a J, obviously. Sorry that you have to listen to me today, but you're going to have to put up with it. Um, it's, it's been great this week, uh, just in the, in the preparation of the sermon, the way God has been sort of teaching me uh, a ton of different things as we continue the story of Jonah. Um, it's been amazing. We're right at the tail end of this series. And I think if we just ask any single one of us, we'll realize that what we thought of Jonah at the beginning of this series is probably entirely different now as we come to the close. And there's about two more weeks left of this. Um, if you're new here, uh, again, my name is Sibi, and uh, we're, we're a group of people here who yet, while we are undeserving of God's grace, have been lavishly poured um, over by it. And we are pleased and we are, we are worshipful of this great God that we serve. And we really believe that everything that is in this book is worthy of our, our worship and uh, adoration and praise. And so this morning, uh, we are under the preaching of God's Word. Um, each week, we get to preach about the gospel, beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus through this book. Um, and so as we listen to the preaching of God's Word, we don't expect it just to come in as, as knowledge that we'll just shelve away on the shelf that we will just accumulate, but we really want it to change us, we really want it to convict us, we really want it to refashion our lives. And so um, this morning I have the great honor of preaching God's Word to us, with us today. And so, like I said, we're near the end of this sharing we've titled, We Are Jonah. Before we get into our text, let's quickly revisit where we've been with this story. Uh, the book of Jonah, as we know, is about a man named Jonah. Uh, he existed around 4th century B.C. Uh, in the Old Testament era. And now for weeks, we've been railing on this guy. We've been probably putting him in the worst light we've ever, we've ever seen him. We've been talking about how he was called to go to Nineveh by God, to an evil city, a sinful city named Nineveh. Jonah was a prophet of God, uh, and you would think that he would know that he would not be able to run away from the God, that he would run on the road that he created and so he was called to Nineveh, but what Jonah does is goes in the complete opposite direction. Nineveh was what we now consider uh, modern-day Iraq. It was right by that. Um, but Jonah the prophet, like Forrest Gump, ran away from his, his girlfriend, I think her name was Jenny, rejected him, and then he ran across the United States. In the same way, Jonah just treks right across the end of the world to the end of the known world at that time goes away from the call of God. Jonah literally, he looks east, which is where Nineveh was, where God called him to go. And then Jonah looks west toward Tarshish, the complete opposite direction, where, where is now we consider Spain. He completely goes in the opposite direction of where God called him to go. And so for the past several weeks, we've been talking about how, how Jonah boarded a ship to Tarshish, went down to Joppa. And just as God sent a great wind a gadol wind we've been talking about upon that sea, it threatened the ship to break. The pagan mariners on the ship eventually found out that Jonah was actually the cause of the storm after they found him sleeping below deck. And they asked him, Jonah, what shall we do? You're the cause of this great storm. And so you'd expect this prophet Jonah to say, oh, this is wonderful. I get, a ch I get the chance to tell these pagan mariners of this great God whom I worship and serve, this is my chance but no, Jonah responds by saying, if you, want this, if you want this storm to cease, you're pretty much going to have to throw me overboard. With this sort of sarcastic tone, Jonah says, you have to throw me overboard if you want this storm to cease. 
and, and the mariners don't want to hurt Jonah. And so they say, no, we won't do that. Let's just try to row harder and get back to dry land. And, and they, they are seemingly more concerned about Jonah the prophet than the prophet Jonah is concerned about these pagan mariners. And throughout this story, we've been seeing irony and after irony of this enigmatic character of Jonah. What you see is not what you would expect. But ironically, the pagans seem more concerned about the prophet than he does about them. In this story, this has been one of many ironic scenarios we've come in contact with. In this story, when the mariners realize that they couldn't beat the storm by trying to row harder to get back to dry land, they eventually pick up Jonah and toss him right overboard in chapter 1. And so then that leads us right into chapter 2. And this is the scene that is probably the most familiar scene that we're, we're accustomed to hearing. In this scene, God appoints a great fish, usually seen on pictures as a great whale, like a shamu or something, appoints this great fish to swallow up Jonah. And he was in there for three days, three nights, an entire weekend, Friday to Sunday. If you remember Ajay's brief story a couple of weeks ago, he sort of uh, shared this, this uh, kid's book with us that he found when he went to Sight and Sound. And, and in this kid's book, we saw a picture of this, and the belly of the whale was apparently furnished with a blanket and, and lighting, well lighting, and all of this. And it was a beautiful picture of what that belly of the whale looked like, and we sort of want to go into it ourselves and see what's down there. But as you've probably had to explain to your kids that, that there's no Santa and there's, there's no tooth fairy, you've probably also had to ex explain to your kids over the past couple of weeks that this pretty picture of the whale, the belly of the fish of the whale, is not how we've seen it. Or you can just ignore that and wait a few years to tell them the bad news. But no matter what, our, our eyes have been open to see that this, this picturesque model of the belly of the fish is not really what happened. We've seen that that this was sort of an eye-opener to us to see how terrible this ordeal really was. I mean, Jonah uses the word Sheol to describe what this was like. Sheol is a word to describe what hell is like, what, what the grave is like. This was, this was a bad place to be. It was no light matter. And so in chapter 2, we see that Jonah prays in the belly of this fish and gives thanks to God for saving him through the fish. And, and the Lord then commands jo the, the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. It's amazing. It's beautiful how God used this fish to save Jonah. The fish that swallowed Jonah, however, that is so often seen as the main story of this book of Jonah, is now seen only in, in a few verses of this book. It's only, it's only a prop in this entire story of Jonah. So now we move on to chapter 3. What have we seen in chapter 3? We see God calling Jonah to Nineveh a second time. This guy actually gets a second chance. It's amazing. This guy ran away from God and God calls him back. This deficient prophet is called back to go back to Nineveh. And so this time, he goes. Grudgingly, he goes. Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches the shortest sermon in history, eight words in English, five words in Hebrew, and the people of Nineveh actually repent. All of them, from the king down to the peasant, did not eat or drink. They put on sackcloth, sat in ashes, and hoped that God would relent of the destruction that was to come upon them. An amazing display of repentance. And what's more amazing is that our great God actually relents from the disaster that He said He would do to them in chapter 3. It was a beautiful sight of God's grace and compassion extended to a people who were unworthy of it. And then chapter 4, which is what we've been considering over the past few weeks. The celebration that we would expect Jonah to, to be the host of and the feast that should be hosted by God's messenger Jonah 
never quite happens. Instead, you, you see Jonah in a completely different state of mind. I mean, in the background, you have this entire city, a sinful city, known for their immorality and cruelty, now face down before God, repenting. God shows mercy and compassion to them, and Jonah is off in the distance, irate and angry about it all. You sort of wonder why this response from Jonah, and he can't stand the fact that this has happened. Because all of this time, God has been for, or in his mind, God has been for Israel and his people and for Jonah. And now, God is also for his enemies in Nineveh. He doesn't want anything to do with it. And so then it clicks. Then it hits us. When we look back at chapter 1, the reason Jonah didn't obey God in chapter 1 was not because he was scared of the Ninevites or because he didn't feel like the message would fall and catch the hearts of these people. But the reason Jonah ran was because he did not want to see the Ninevites come to God. He did not want to see the mercy and compassion of God extended to these people. Jonah hated Nineveh. Jonah was only for his group of people. Jonah wanted the mold to stay. He didn't want it to break. Jonah was a racist. Jonah did not understand God. And so we see a few verses later, God attempting to open Jonah's eyes to his own hypocrisy and sinfulness. So as we saw last week, God appoints a plant, a great plant, to come over Jonah to act as a shade to give him comfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad. However, when dawn came, God is sort of messing with Jonah at this point to teach him a lesson. God appoints a worm to attack this plant. And the plant withered. And then as the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind to beat on the head of Jonah. And Jonah became faint. Jonah became angry. And the, and the scripture says that Jonah was angry enough to die. And so in chapter 4, verses 10, God tells Jonah this, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and then perished in a night. And as part of my, my sermon prep this week, I spent about an hour and 22 minutes watching a movie about the book of Jonah in which Jonah was an asparagus. And many of you, if you guys are a fan of VeggieTales, you may have watched the movie as well. Um, it was sort of prep, but it was sort of a break from the whole thing as well. And I laughed. It was hilarious. I definitely recommend it. Um, but some of the details of this movie were probably embellished and probably really didn't happen, such as uh, the way they figured out Jonah was the cause of the storm on the ship. They played go fish and Jonah lost. And so that's how they figured out he was responsible. Or the other scene in chapter 3, when Jonah came to preach to the Ninevites, apparently he was accused of st stealing cheese curls from the cheese curl factory that was housed in Nineveh. So a very, very interesting story, but I think it got one point right. In chapter 4, when it talks about the plant coming over Jonah and it being destroyed by the worm, scorching east wind coming, this, this uh, cartoon movie, VeggieTales, their de depiction of Jonah, I think they get it accurate because it, it really shows how, how silly Jonah is to really be worried about this plant that came and went in, in but a night. And so if you're watching it with your kids, you can probably even imagine them saying, oh, come on, Jonah, you're, you're being such a baby. You, you've barely known this, this plant, and now you're considering it greater than anything you've ever known. And it's as if Jonah cared more for this soulless single plant than for the 120,000 people in the background who just came to God. He would have rather seen them destroyed. At the end of all this, we sort of step back and say, take a sigh and we say, God, 
I mean, could you really not find anyone better than this guy Jonah? I mean, is there not anyone better that could have sent your message more efficiently or more effectively, more quickly, rather than you having to go to, go to the great ordeal of having to send a fish and all of this? Jonah is not who you'd hope for. Jonah is a disappointment. You'd wish that God called someone else, someone greater. And so we'll talk about that in a few moments. First, let's bow our heads and come to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You for bringing us here this day. We thank You for grace, though undeserved, Father, You have shown to us, Lord. And God, as we have been seeing Jonah in our own lives, as we have been seeing how, how sinful we truly are, God, we even long for something better than Jonah, and we long for better for ourselves as well, God. We don't want to stay in the state that we are, Father, but we want something greater than what Jonah, a mere man, has to offer, Lord. God, teach us today by Your Word. Help us to sit under its authority and really let it convict our hearts. We surrender to You this day and ask that Your Word would go forth. Amen. So during the entire course of this series on Jonah, uh, we've been primarily in the book of Jonah. We've been talking verse through verse, verse by verse, about how this story actually unfolds. And so this week, we're going to step away from the book of Jonah and go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. And if you have your Bibles, um, you can turn to it. It's 817 in the Black Bibles. And so we'll see what, what Jesus has to say about this man, Jonah. Beginning at verse 38, chapter 12 of Matthew. 12, of Matthew. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. We'll make sense of that passage, but first, we're going to consider where the story is actually taking place. Right before this passage of, of verse 32 in chapter 12, we see in Matthew a series of interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees. And for many of us may be familiar with the Pharisees, both because we see them in ourselves and because we read of them in the Scriptures. The Pharisees were this, these religious, moral, upright people of God who, who put on this sort of semblance of spirituality, but in reality, they were all about themselves. And it's sort of like they, they used God as a masquerade to, to live their own lives according to their own flesh and desires. Jesus reveals this throughout the Gospels, that they just did not understand Him. They did not understand who God was about. In fact, we see a lot of Jonah in these Pharisees. If, if, Jonah, if Jonah, as we read of in, in the Old Testament, were to be here at Jesus' time, you can imagine that Jonah would be right there with the Pharisees, involved in the conversations they're involved in, saying the things that they're saying. The Pharisees were more about their cultural and religious heritage as Jews. These people were more about what they knew rather than what would transform their hearts truly. Rather than as products of God's grace, they saw their identity in, in Israel, in, in their culture, in their religious tradition. 
God was fashioned according to their liking. And they certainly did not like Jesus. They, they bickered and they, they always were right there ready to, to give some kind of contempt towards Jesus. And so we see preceding the passage we just read in verse 30, 38 that Jesus was being hounded by these Pharisees in chapter 12. In one instance, just one instance, the disciples at the beginning of chapter 12 um, were hungry on the Sabbath. As they went through the grain fields, they plucked the, 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 the grains from these fields and they were hungry, so they took them. The Pharisees are right there to say, no, you cannot do this on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is the day that you keep holy. In another instance, we see Jesus restoring a man's withered hands. The Pharisees are right there to say, don't heal on the Sabbath. And yet in another instance, Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man. This is all in chapter 12. Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, who then saw and spoke. The Jews, the Pharisees there say to Jesus, you are a person who, who has these powers from the devil. I mean, these are bold claims that the Pharisees are making. You can almost imagine Jesus saying, all right, look, Pharisees, if you don't agree with me, if you don't want to listen to me, just go away. Stop annoying me. Just, just don't follow me around. But everywhere you look, the Pharisees are right around the corner. In fact, they, they hate him so much that we later find that, that the Pharisees and a group of people began to plot against Jesus. And so as we re- read this passage again, understanding this mindset, we realize that their request to Jesus was not genuine. So we read again in verse 38. Teacher, and note the sarcasm with that address, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the prophet Jonah. And at this moment in time, the name of Jonah was not even talked about for 300 years, around 300 years. And now here Jonah is being spoken of by Jesus as the sign. As we read through the scriptures, one of the most interesting elements of it is that it often always almost connects the Old Testament with the New Testament. We see this sort of meta-narrative of the story of of God in the Scriptures. And this is not to say, as some people often do, to say that every single word, every single detail of the Bible is some kind of allegory or some kind of um, hidden meaning. No, we, we look at the Bible and we say that this is what it's saying then and this is what it's saying now. So it's not that we pick every single thing and throw some symbolic nature to it. But what we hope to do is that we want to realize as we take an entire survey of the Bible that Christ is in all of it. He's in every page. We often have this tendency, and we've talked about this here before, that we want to look at the Scriptures. We want to look at it, every book, every verse, every application, and say, this is about me. This is how I can apply this to my life. And and even in the story of Jonah, we are learning what, what it's speaking to us. We are learning what it means to really... Uh, be about God, and that is true. But, but more than all of that, and primarily, what the Scriptures are about, every book, yes, every chapter, every verse, every inspiration of God is to point us to Jesus Christ. And it's not that we're focused more on the old or focused more on the new, but together we're looking at how the old and the new speak of Jesus. And so, in fact, in, in Luke 24, which is actually where we at Seven Mile Road find our story, in verse 44, we, say, uh, Jesus, we see Jesus saying to the people on, on the road, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, 
and the Psalms. Sometimes people of the Bible are used in Scriptures as types of Christ, as figures of Christ, as models or signs of Christ, such as Adam or Moses or David and, and a whole other list of characters and symbols in the Bible. But then we think about all of that. We think about our guy Jonah and we look at him, we wonder, is Jonah really a good type of Jesus? I mean, is he really a person that we can compare Jesus with? Because here, here Jesus stands before the Pharisees. They demand a sign from Jonah. And who does Jesus pick as the person to say is the sign of, of, of Jesus? He names Jonah. Jonah of all people. And there have been many figures, as we said, in the Old Testament that Jesus could have pointed to that were far better than Jonah or at least seemed better than Jonah. But lo and behold, Jesus for this crowd picks Jonah. I mean, Jonah. We've just spent weeks bashing this guy. We've spent weeks talking about how this guy is, is, is horrible. And now Jesus is saying that he's the sign. That's sort of like saying the New York Giants are the sign for talent. Or, or sort of saying like Dennis is, is a sign for being soft-spoken. It doesn't make sense. And just in the same way, we think of Jonah and we look at Jesus and there's this disparity. We wonder why he's liking himself to Jesus. It doesn't really make sense. Jonah is this guy who ran from God, didn't care about the mariners on the ship, didn't want to see Nineveh live after his own life was saved. This was the rogue prophet who we see in a pitiable condition at the end of Jonah, with no closure even. So it's not even like we get any kind of sense of, oh, this guy is actually good. Why would Jesus look at Jonah and say that he is a sign? Let's continue reading from verse 39. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. There are two explicit parallels that we can see Jesus making here first with, with Jonah and himself. First, he foreshadows his own resurrection after his death on the cross, which happens a few chapters later in the gospel. And he refers to the three days and three nights of Jonah being in the belly of the fish and sort of talks about that in the way that he will be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. And second, he parallels them both as preachers of repentance to a city, to a people. At the end of verse 41, we see that Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah. If we read on one more verse to verse 42, which we won't focus on too much, it, it says that Jesus references Solomon, a former king of Israel, in a similar way by saying, someone greater than Solomon is here. And then if we look back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, the beginning of this chapter, we see Jesus conveying that he is greater than King David, and that he's Lord of the Sabbath, and that he says something greater than the temple is here. It seems like Jesus, on a surface level, has some sort of an ego problem. He's sort of throwing out these random things that we see as random, and he's saying, I'm greater than this, I'm greater than that, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, I'm greater than the temple and the priesthood. And to the Pharisees and the scribes that are listening, if you would just think for a moment, it's as if Jesus is stepping on their toes, sort of wearing metal cleats, 
he's really getting at the heart of some issues here. There are very contentious issues, elements to all of this that we have to consider. What do I mean? One theologian says this about the types of Jesus that he, he chooses to select in this scripture. He chooses these types or these models or these signs when he says that, that he's greater than these as comparisons that add up to a remarkable view, a remarkable view or overview of the main channels through which God's authority was formerly exercised among the people of Israel. These are big players in the Old Testament. He chooses David, the greatest king. He, he then talks about the sacred temple and the priesthood. In our text today, he points out that Jonah is a representative prophet. And then in verse 42, Solomon, the wise man and king. Big, big players. For Jesus to just have claimed that, that these lines of authority came together to have found their contemporary manifestation in Jesus, that all of these things sort of found themselves in Jesus, that would have been bold enough. If he just said that, that would have been bold enough. But what do we have Jesus doing? Not only does he bring all of these highly, highly revered symbols of God together to be found in him, he takes it a step further and he says that, that he is greater than all of them. I mean, that's huge. Jesus is saying that, that he is greater than Jonah may seem like no big deal to us. It may seem small to us. But the Old Testament is where these guys find their identity, where they find their spirituality. He is stepping on their toes by saying this. They are becoming deeply offended by Jesus and do not want to believe it. As, as they, and they, they will fight, as we see, with what, is Jesus, what Jesus is saying in the Scriptures to follow. Jesus is essentially saying this, that everything that they've based their lives upon, everything they've built their religion on, it's actually pointing to this man, Jesus who's standing before him, them now. He's saying that the true Israel is now to be found in those who follow Jesus. He's saying that he himself embodies the status and destiny of Israel. That, that the community of those who belong to him, that status and destiny are to be fulfilled. Their exclusive rights to God are being taken away from them. And now they're being swept up into this larger view of things. God is no longer only theirs. And He never was, but they thought that He was. Jesus claimed that one greater than Jonah, greater than David, greater than Solomon, the temple and the priesthood, and any other thing that existed before Him, it's ridiculous to the Pharisees. In the minds of the Pharisees, they have come to realize that Jesus is bold in His claims and He's not bashful. He's not this sort of wimp that sort of just stands back and takes everything. He won't speak idly, but he will speak when necessary. And so even in their request to see a sign from Jesus, we see that it's not because they want to believe that he's the Son of God, but rather they want to further bring him to writing his own death sentence in the Scriptures. And then one step further, as if all of these claims were not worse or bad enough, Jesus takes it just one step further to really drive home the point. We read in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I feel like if I were one of Jesus' followers at this time, this is the part where I would sort of tug at his cloak and say, okay, Jesus, this is enough. You've already said enough. 
Just stop. Because what Jesus is saying here is not only that he's greater than Jonah or that he's equivalent to Jonah, but in verse 41 we see that he's also saying that these Pharisees are worse than pagan Nineveh. I mean, we we see in verse 41 it says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. He's saying the Ninevites are better than the Pharisees. What an insult. Jesus is saying that the arrogant idolaters, the evil people of Nineveh, who by God's grace were humbled and rescued, will be the very people who will rise at judgment day to condemn these Pharisees. And now they are standing to Jesus listening with selfish, judgmental hearts. Those people that were standing there with judgmental hearts will be the people that are going to be judged by pagan Nineveh. Think about it. On the day of judgment, the Ninevites will be on one side. You have these people that just look a mess. Who knows, maybe they have tattoos. Not the tattoos are wrong, but maybe they're not the people that you would expect to see up there, right? These are people who raped women. These are people who tortured babies. These are people who plundered cities to take it over. And then on the other side, you have the Pharisees, these people who had sort of religious crowns on their heads, who believe that everything they've lived is right and true and true to Scripture. The Pharisees are on one side, the Ninevites are on the other side. To Nineveh, God will say, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom of God that is prepared for you. To the Pharisees, he will say, Depart from me because I never knew you. I mean, this is big. These are men who grew up in the visible church. These are men who grew up hearing the word of God. These are men who made a profession of faith in the living God. These are men who knew the prophecies of old. They knew it. They knew the scriptures. These are men who were looking actually for the Messiah. These are people who ruled in the religious circles of Israel. And at the end of it all, come judgment day, they will be condemned. And friends, even today, the same applies to us. Growing up in the church doesn't mean that we're saved. Hearing the word of God all your life does not mean that we're saved. We can often build our lives on on these, these histories of faith, this long lineage of faith, whether it's our parents or even our understanding of Scripture, we may be able to articulate theology. We may even be able to preach or sing songs. We, we may have an opinion about every detail on how the nation should be under God or how, how God should be in our schools or how have a long list of what church should be like. And while even some of these points may be valid, we miss the point of it all. We, we don't realize that our problem is not necessarily with the way things are. Our problem is often with what we see when we look in the mirror. Our problem is often ourselves. We look at Nineveh. We look at Nineveh, dirty, scoundrels, evil, the obvious sin. We look at Philadelphia, our own city. You walk to some of the streets in downtown Philly, and maybe you don't think this, but sometimes I think, goodness, I am better off than these people. And we we get in this mindset of feeling like we are higher or better But in reality, we fail to realize our veiled hypocrisy in the whole thing. We fail to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even this day, may we repent. May we repent as the Ninevites did before God. Looking back at the scene in Matthew, 
The Ninevites repented at the word spoken by a severely reluctant prophet with a diseased heart that didn't understand God, that didn't understand God's grace. And then we have the people here in Jesus' day that are getting God's word from a bigger, richer, deeper, better, fuller source. Jesus himself is speaking to them. The Ninevites heard God's word from a sinful man and they repented. The Pharisees and the people of this day heard God's word from God himself and they did not repent. As we compare Jonah and Jesus, we'll, we'll look through a few similar aspects that we can see. And we'll name a few. If you look at Jesus and Jonah, what ways are they similar? They were both prophets. They were both from the same region of Israel. Jonah from Gath Hefer, Jesus from Nazareth, towns that are very close to each other. They were both called to give a message to lost people. And get this, they were both even on a, on a ship when a storm hit. There are many parallels that we can draw here. Jesus, however, is greater than Jonah. Sure, Jesus was a prophet. Sure, Jesus was a teacher. Sure, he was on the ship. But all of these things, these titles, Jesus is not just these things. Jesus was the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who came into this world. Jesus and Jonah are really different. Jesus comes into the picture and turns everything upside down. He has the eyes of grace to see it extended to the Gentiles. The religious are not happy. The Israelites may not be glad. And if Jonah was there, he would probably join in. But Jesus is more concerned with proclaiming truth despite their sentiment. And so, we say that Jesus was the greater prophet than Jonah in every aspect. Why? Or how? Well, look, Jonah was called to go to a sinful people by God, but runs in the opposite direction from God. Jonah ran away from God. Jesus leaves his heavenly throne and runs and comes down to, to the world to a sinful people that he may save them. Jonah is, on a, is asleep on a ship when a great storm threatens to break it apart. In fact, he's the cause of the storm. In Matthew 8, we see Jesus also asleep on a ship when a great storm hits. But Jesus speaks a word into the storm and calms it by his words. Jonah preaches this half-hearted sermon to an undeserving and evil city, hoping that they would not hear it and that they would not turn to God. Jesus preaches passionately to an undeserving people, evil people, that he might save them. I mean, we can go all day. Jonah displayed hatred and hypocrisy and racism. Jesus came into this earth, showed compassion and mercy. I mean, his circle of friends were the second-rate citizens and prostitutes. I mean, these are not people that you would expect him to be hanging around. He came and broke all of the molds. Jonah, if we look at Jonah, Jonah was an instrument of God's grace to the Ninevites. Jesus was the very source of God's grace to a sinful people. In the scripture that Jim read today, John describes Jesus as being full of grace and full of truth. John adds that through Jesus, while Jesus came into this world after John in the world, Jesus ranks before John because he existed before time even began. 
Jonah unwillingly entered the belly of the fish. He had to be forced to go to Nineveh. Jonah did not want to see God's will fulfilled, but rather sought to have his own will fulfilled. Jonah essentially said, God, not your will be done, but mine. Look at Jesus. Jesus willingly came into this earth. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his crucifixion and all of that happened, though it meant his very life, went to the cross and the tomb while saying, not my will, but your will be done. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for his own sinfulness. Jesus entered the grave for your sin and mine. Jesus was greater than Jonah because he literally, not just figuratively, rose from the grave. I mean, that's huge. Whereas Jonah spent three days in the belly of the great fish, Jesus spent three days in the grave. Jonah was a sign of Jesus, but he was only a sign. Jonah was just a piece of the puzzle. But Jesus is whom we want to see in all of it. O. Palmer Robertson, a scholar, says this about, about this whole happening. All praise to Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of the Lord. He endured things worse than Jonah. Hell itself was his cup to drink, not merely a mouthful of salt water. The Lord pursued Jonah to the point of death for the sake of the salvation of many. But he pursued Christ to the fact of hell to save numberless sinners throughout the history of the world. Christ's work is so much greater, so much deeper. It is so much more powerful, so much more vast than anything Jonah would have ever done. It runs past this one-time event, this one-time altar call of people coming to God. It runs throughout history, both before Jonah, after Jonah, during Christ, after Christ, and even now. What Christ has done is huge. Jesus conquered death and hell and rose from the grave. Do you see, are you beginning to see how great it really is? And what's greater is that this great, great God is pursuing us Ninevites today. This great God is pursuing us Pharisees even today. This great God is pursuing us who look so much like Jonah even today. Jonah's role went far beyond just being an unwilling object to God's grace extended to pagan sailors and pagan Nineveh. And it even went beyond God's intent to, to save Jonah in the process. Jonah was used, in fact, to point us to the one who is greater than all. Jonah was used to point to Jesus. To say that God is greater than Moses, Jonah, David, Solomon, or anyone else ever is an understatement. Apart from God's grace, none of these men, none of these people, none of us are any different apart from the grace of God. We are wanderers in this world who need God. All of us, each and every single one of us. Our city needs God. We preach not because we're great, but we preach because Jesus is great. We preach not to bask in the fact that we have this grace and we hoard it and keep it to ourselves and become inward and want it to see only extended to those whom are part of our circle. But we preach so that others may see this great Christ and receive His grace. Jesus is all over the story of Jonah. 
He's everywhere. No wonder he said that the sign of Jonah is here and that he is so much greater than him, more than the, than the phrase, someone is greater than Jonah is here, could ever explain. It's greater than the phrase. It is beyond comprehension. Words cannot describe it. And it almost seems like a humble thing that, jo- that Jesus says to say, someone greater than Jonah is here. I mean, he's God. He doesn't have to say that. But Jesus, unlike Jonah, unlike hypocritical, evil Jonah, ran towards his enemies, ran towards us, fully knowing that death would be his destiny. And even in his life, which would end in death, this greater Jonah, Jesus, pursued God's rescue mission with a totally, totally engaged heart. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says this, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. While it is true that the book of Jonah teaches us the extent to which God will go to show grace to those he loves. Well, that is true. Think about how much more this is displayed in the sending of himself to this world. God sent himself to this world. Jonah was thrown overboard by mariners. Jesus threw himself into the world, into the hands of men, and onto a cross to be killed so that we may be saved. What a great God, what an amazing Savior, truly a greater Jonah has come. And He is with us today. Do you see how much greater Jesus is? Do you understand the fullness of God's amazing grace? I hope we are getting it today. Jonah merely foreshadows Christ. He only scratches the surface of who He is. In Jesus we see the fullness of God's amazing grace and love. And the amazing thing is that when we look at Matthew 12, the Pharisees were asking Jesus for some sort of sign. And whatever their motivation behind that was, they committed themselves to this idea of seeing to believe. They needed to see something to believe that He was God. The ironic thing is that the entire time, the greatest reality that could ever, ever exist was right before their eyes. God was before them in the flesh. The sinful people of Nineveh repented and believed in God by means of a deficient prophet. And here stands before the Pharisees the greatest prophet that would ever encounter, that they would ever encounter, and they do not believe. They do not repent. They don't realize that Jesus is greater, sweeter, truer than anyone they would ever encounter. And so now the question comes to us. How many in our city will repent at this greater Jonah, this great Lord Jesus Christ? How many will forgo lives of sinfulness for lives that are covered with the amazing grace of God? And looking at ourselves, will we hear, will we turn from serving religion to serving great religion to serving a great God? God is above anyone, anything else ever. And so if we fashion our lives based on our, our, our performance or based on what we know, based on what we grow, grew up with knowing, I mean, we're no better than the Pharisees. We look a lot like Jonah and the Pharisees. May we repent today. Will we do that today? May we, may we come back to the cross of Jesus Christ and see what took place there. May we be led 
in worship and adoration of this great God. Let's close our eyes in prayer. Jesus, you are greater. You are sweeter. You are truer than any other. Your amazing grace has come to sinful Jonah, to sinful Nineveh. And now, Father, it comes to us. Father, open up our hearts. May we see you. May we believe that you are greater than we could ever know. You are greater than words could ever express. We sing of you this day, Lord. May our lives be fashioned about around who you are, God. May we be broken. May we be broken at the foot of the cross. Break us, Lord, this day as we look to your cross, as we look to Jesus. Amen.